Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to have Laura Robson with us. Laura teaches history at Penn State University, where she holds the Oliver McCourtney Professorship in History, and she's published several books on violence, refugees, and forced migration and ethnic politics in the Middle East and across the world. Uh, A graduate of Yale, she taught at Portland State, where she was named the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences Researcher of the Year before she moved east. And her new book, the one we'll be discussing today, is titled The Politics of Mass Violence in the Middle East, and is published by Oxford as part of their Zones of Violence series. It's a slim volume, but remarkably rich, and I'm uh, really looking forward to discussing it today. So, Laura, welcome, and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. So I always start, and I know you've been on the network before, but on a different channel. So, so I just ask you maybe to say a little bit about um, about who you are and and how you became interested in history. So I began life in an entirely different kind of academic and um, intellectual sphere. I actually trained as a pianist um, when I was younger. And was also a history major as an undergrad, um, where I studied classics mostly. Um, but then I think it, in this period of time when I was living in England right after college, I kind of became interested in the imperial history that I was seeing around me. And it was a moment when the Middle East was in the news. Um, and I had recently been to Turkey as part of a an archaeology classics trip. Um, And it really began, it was a moment when I began to think about the kind of ongoing repercussions of empire across the globe and the ways in which these histories were still unfolding more than a century later. Um, And I think that was kind of the beginning of my interest in the Middle East and my interest in kind of contemporary histories of empire and decolonization. Yeah, I saw that you had a a degrees in music. Does that sensibility or that experience, does that impact your your either identification or your practice as a historian, or is that just something that you used to do? (laughs) I think that there are some abstract ways in which it has influenced um, the way that I write and the way that I think about audience. Mm. Um, You know, I think that it's one of the key things about being a performer, right? That you need an audience, you need someone to be listening. And I, I think that this is actually an important aspect of scholarship as well, that we as historians need to be mm-hmm. thinking about audience, looking for audiences, um, thinking about engaging ways to interact with readers and listeners. Um, and that these are, you know, the issues that we write about are issues of crucial importance to the contemporary world and that we need to be able to convey that in a kind of clear and urgent fashion. Um, so I, I hope that my work has started to do some of that for the history of the Middle East. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting question. So who's, who do you see it? So mm, let me back up a lot of professors, tend to see their audience as other professors. So as you think about your scholarship, who is the audience you hope will read your books? I hope that my books will be read by scholars and students, certainly. Um, But also, you know, this kind of elusive creature that people call the interested general public, (laughs) (laughs) um, which is a little bit of a difficult thing to 
define. Um, but, you know, I think there are a lot of people who genuinely want to be engaged with the world, who want to mm. be thinking about what's happening around the globe, who want to have an informed sense of contemporary political developments. And I think that a lot of my work speaks quite directly to contemporary mm. issues of politics. Um, and I, I hope that it can offer that kind of a contextualization and maybe to some degree, an explanation of how things came to be how they are. Um, so, so I do think that I hope that my audience goes beyond the scholarly community. Um, although I think that scholarship is is crucially important to producing the kind of knowledge that can then reach a wider world. So you've written several books. Um, how did this one come to be? So I always feel like a little bit of a fraud talking about this book because it actually wasn't my idea in the first instance. Um, I was approached by the editors of the series, um, mm -hmm. Donald Bloxham and Mark Levine, who are both scholars of genocide in Europe, mostly. Mm -hmm. um, and they were looking for someone to write the Middle East volume of their series on Zones of Violence, mm -hmm. which is a series that seeks to kind of rethink some of the basic premises of genocide studies as a field um, and apply new analytical lenses across different geographies um, in the modern world. So they'd already published uh, several volumes in this series um, and were looking for a Middle East specialist to kind of add to the, the their library. Um, and it was really an appealing idea because it offered an opportunity for me to step back from some more specialized work that I had been doing and think about some really big picture issues, right? How how do violent political landscapes develop? You know, what are the what are the global structural features that we could see emerging in the Middle East across the 20th century that lead to um, this this politics of violent sectarianism and that we're kind of familiar with in the contemporary era. Um, so it seemed like a really intellectually rich project and also an opportunity to reach a wider audience to think about, you know, bringing together f different fields that have not mm -hmm. historically been in conversation Um and it was and working with Donald and Mark was also a really wonderful experience. They're tremendous scholars themselves, and I enjoyed having the opportunity to engage with them. And for longtime listeners of the show, you'll remember that I've interviewed both of them at various times in the history of the network. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those. Um, so I talk a lot of my, my, my students and, and other grad students about um, the importance of having an elevator pitch a little two minute summary of what you're working on. What's your elevator speech for the conclusions for the book? What's the thesis? The thesis of the book is that we too often tend to think about a politics of violence in the Middle East as arising from kind of ancient hatreds and that that is an insufficient and in fact radically inaccurate understanding of how a politics of violence kind of came to exist in the modern Middle East. And that rather, we need to understand the political practice of violence as something that is deeply connected to developments of modernity, mm -hmm. that it has to do with the rise of the nation state and the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th and early 20th century. It has to do with the rise of an aggressively territorial state in the context of the European colonial occupation of the Mashrik, which is the word that we use to describe the Arabic speaking Eastern Mediterranean. And that then it has to do with the perpetuation of that politics of violence by 
superpowers intent on maintaining their influence over the Middle East in the post-1945 era. So my argument here is that we can see when this politics of violence takes hold and the ways in which it installs the practice of violence at the heart of state legitimacy in the Middle East. And I would argue that this is actually something that happens elsewhere as well. And that it is not, in fact, some kind of permanent longstanding condition, but rather has to do with the specific um, modernities that come to bear on the region across the period of colonialism and decolonization. And you start the book um, with a couple quotes. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could read those quotes and, and then say a little bit about why you thought you wanted to uh, begin the book with them. Sure. Um, so there are two epigraphs for the book. Um, the first comes from Achille Mbembe, um, his article Necropolitics from 2003, in which he says, quote, the ultimate expression of sovereignty resides to a large degree in the power and the capacity to dictate who may live and who must die. Mm. And the second quote comes from Hannah Arendt's um, article Reflections on Violence, which was published in 1969 and has been republished many times since, mm. in which she said, quote, the practice of violence, like all action, changes the world, but the most probable change is a more violent world. I picked these two because... I think that one of the one of the things that I was exploring in this book is something that I think is underrecognized in the modern political history of the world in general and the Middle East in particular and that is the way in which the shape and legitimacy and political authority of the modern state rests on the use of force. Mm. And this is not a new idea, right? I mean, it's something that many people have commented on through the course of the 20th century, including you know, people like Weber. Um, but I think that we don't often think about the process by which that use of force becomes a primary venue of political action and source of legitimacy. And that was one of the things that I really wanted to think about here. How do we move towards a state that relies on violence as both a primary practice of, and exercise of its power and also th you know, thinks about violence as a legitimization of its power as a kind of political justificatory um, practice, right? And so that was this this quote seemed to me like really a useful encapsulation and a visceral presentation of that idea. And it's one that we don't consider often enough when we think about the relationship between violence and the state, that we are, in fact, talking about the capacity to decide who lives and who dies, that these are really kind of visceral, physical um understandings of political power, right? And I wanted, I wanted to convey that sense right from the beginning of the book. Hannah Arendt, of course, is, you know, someone who has been hugely important to thinking about political violence across the 20th mm -hmm. century. And I, I, I chose this quote because I wanted also to point up that the practice of violence in this story, as in so many others, builds on itself, that once you have established violence as one of the key pillars, as one of the key political and philosophical pillars of state practice, 
it's very difficult to backtrack. You know, it's very difficult to dismantle that idea and that any succeeding regimes, succeeding administrations, succeeding states are necessarily taking on that history of the use of violence as part of their own political practice. That I think it's it's actually, you know, it's it's something that's extremely difficult and maybe impossible to undo. Um, which I think is is what she's pointing up here that it's it, it, once once you have started down this path, it's hard to go back. So we're going to dig into the book a little bit more now, but before that, uh, a couple terms. Uh, you talk a lot about a book. You you rely on this concept of territoriality, and you talk about Charles Mayer's work. Can you maybe unpack what that means and why that's important in your in your study? Sure. So Charles Mayer is a historian of Europe, um, and in a number of his books and articles, he has kind of expressed the idea that what he calls territoriality is the main marker of political modernity um, across the globe. And what he means by that is that modern states have an expectation and a practice of controlling their land, of controlling their territory, of saturating their territory with the kind of mechanics of rule. So that can be infrastructure, it can be military occupation, it can be, you know, political holds, um, but that there is a kind of saturation of territory with the exercise of political authority that is fundamentally different from how pre-modern states operate, um, where they have a much more theoretical grasp over a great deal of the land that they kind of technically hold. Um, So he talks about this as a European phenomenon, but it's a phenomenon that also applies to the Middle East. It applies to the late Ottoman state. It certainly applies to the colonial European governments that held sway over the Middle East in the interwar period. And it applies to the post-colonial period where we have these post-colonial, mostly authoritarian um, governments seeking to take hold of their territory in the firmest way possible. And that that is in some ways a material process, right? That when he ta- when when Mayer talks about territoriality, he's talking about kind of a material saturation of territory with the mechanics of of political power and military power and economic power. Um, so it struck me as a useful organizing principle for the book to think about. You know that when we're when we're trying to figure out how does violence become such a central piece of how the state operates, this. This exercise of territoriality is an important, has real explanatory power, right? Because we can see the kind of physical, um, geographical takeover of territory and level of control over territory that is fundamentally different from how pre-modern states operate. And the second term or, or concept or phrase, use the phrase mass violence in the title. Um, and you have a brief discussion in the introduction about some of the ways in which genocide studies has tried to engage definitions. What, what, what do you what what do you encompass with the phrase mass violence? So part of the idea behind the zones of violence series was to expand mm-hmm. kind of the genocide studies focus on definitions beyond just our legal understanding of the term genocide. Um, which is something that I think many of your listeners will be familiar with. Um, 
And rather to think about mass violence as a, as a broader phenomenon in itself that encompasses and includes genocide as it is legally understood, um, but also encompasses a number of other manifestations of violence against civilian populations, um, usually undertaken by states, although not always. So in this, in this book, I try to think about mass violence as the exercise of violence against groups of civilian populations and communities who are often defined ethnically or communally um, or linguistically um, or racially. So we have this kind of targeting of civilian populations, civilian communities, and that that can happen at different levels of um, different, different degrees and different levels of number. Um, but that we need to recognize that as a linked phenomenon across the 20th century history of the Middle East, this exercise of violence against ethnically or communally defined groups of civilians is, is a feature and a characteristic of the political landscape that we see emerging in the modern period. Mm -hmm. So why start your book in, uh, in 1878? So this was kind of a, a question, you know, it's always a question where to begin. Um, and I, I, I think that it's not necessarily the only answer to this question, but mm -hmm. I chose to, to start, start then because 1878 is the moment of a conference in which the European powers made what I see as a kind of crucial decision that changed the history of the Ottoman sphere. And that decision was that in the Treaty of Berlin, they decided that they would back the idea of, of formal internationally recognized rights for what would eventually be termed minority populations within the Ottoman Empire, right? So this is kind of the beginning of what's going to be a very long history of a sort of zero-sum game of communal and ethnic and national rights for non-Muslims and non-Arabs across the Ottoman and the post-Ottoman sphere. Um, and it's an important moment because it indicates the European willingness to intervene militarily on behalf of these ethnic and national iterations. And so it threatens the pluralistic hierarchical system on which the Ottoman Ottoman political practice has come to rest. Um, so it's sort of the reason I chose it is that it's the beginning of the end in some ways for the Ottoman Empire and for its modes of governance. So you identify kind of three broad periods in this pre-World War One or, or maybe pre-1918 or 19 period is one of those. So so how does the Ottoman Empire's efforts to wrestle with, and this may be the, the government or it may be the Committee on Union and Progress, or however you want to think about this, how does that effort to, to wrestle with this European challenge and the, the impact of European um, advancements and decisions, how, do, how does their attempt to, re, how do they try and reimagine the Ottoman Empire and, and, and how is that really a change from this earlier understanding? So the earlier Ottoman Empire, you know, prior to the mid 19th century, although again, we can, we can, we yeah. can date these, these developments back, you know, arguably even into the 18th century to some degree. Um, 
But the, the Ottoman Empire is like other pre-modern empires in that it rules over a pluralistic population, that it expects its population to exhibit pluralistic characteristics, and that it understands that population hierarchically. Um, so we have the system where the Ottoman Empire has kind of developed strategies of dealing with its extremely varied communities within its borders without the kind of saturated territorial control mm -hmm. that, that Mayer posits as a kind of later development, right? Um, so it is a looser, more locally variable form of government than what we think of as being kind of characteristic of modern nation states. I think that one of the most crucial things that I wanted to point up in these earlier chapters mm -hmm. is that one of the things that begins to happen in the late 19th century that is really crucial for understanding how the Ottoman Empire comes to a kind of ethnically conscious violence as a practice of its own governance is that we begin to see what British officials refer to as the unmixing of peoples in mm. Eastern Europe and the Balkans. And by that, what they actually mean mostly, not exclusively, but mostly is the mass expulsion of Muslims from Ottoman and formerly Ottoman territory. So we have this kind of moment in the late 19th century where we see enormous numbers of Muslim refugees coming out of the Ottoman and formerly Ottoman Balkan territories into Anatolia. And this has a couple, this, this physical dislocation has a couple of really important knock-on political effects for the Ottoman sphere. First of all, it identifies communal belonging, that is identification as either Muslim or Christian, as a fundamental organizing principle of this period of late 19th century colonial European expansionism, right? Um, that the European powers are targeting particular client populations across the Balkans and the Ottoman regions um, as potential client communities because they are Christian, and that that will therefore come to have a new kind of valence within Ottoman domestic politics, right? And then we have these demographic changes where because of this mass expulsion of Muslims from the Balkans, we have both the kind of de-Muslimization of, of Europe and the de-Christianization rel in relative terms of Anatolia and the Arab provinces, right? As we have this kind of demographic transformation that is moving towards the communal homogenization of both of those spaces. So this demographic change, this demographic shift that results from this enormous influx of Muslim refugees into Anatolia um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and then of course it's intensified during the Balkan Wars of 1812, um, and it's sorry, of 1912 and 1913. Um, you know, this, this, situates the Ottoman government in a different political realm. And it's one where they begin to start to think, we need to take on these characteristics of nation statehood too, in order to be able to push back effectively against this threat. And it also promotes a new suspicion of Christian populations who are still within the empire because they have been identified as these kind of European client communities by the European so-called great powers. So I think that I think we sometimes think about 
nationalism is something that comes in as an idea and is adopted as an idea and then put into place as a state practice, right? And in fact, I would argue that's not actually what happens here is that that the idea of ethnic nationalism is nascent in the late 19th and early 20th century, and that what actually pushes it along and pushes along the idea of a kind of ethnically based violence that the Ottomans will be exhibiting in full by the time of the First World War, right? Um, that what actually begins to push that are, are, are physical changes, demographic changes, these mm-hmm. kinds of military campaigns, you know, that this is, this is if, if, you know, as has famously been said, nationalisms predate nationalities. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is another such case, right, where we have the, the physical dislocations predate the kind of articulation of ethnic and national and religious identities that they represent. And then, of course, you get the challenge of global conflict. Uh, yes. and, and a couple questions about that. First off, when, when historians of violence look at this, they often think about the Armenian genocide. But you point out there's actually much more violence associated with this conflict than simply the Armenian genocide. So so what is that? Gen- where does that vi- other violence come from and, and what is it for? It's a trope. I mean, it's a common trope that genocides are often perpetuated Mm -hmm. in the context of war, right? Um, And other kinds of mass violence, that is equally true for other kinds of mass violence. Mm -hmm. So one of my arguments in the book is that the war is a moment where we start to be able to see the political articulation of the Arab provinces as a space that is different and separate from Anatolia in a way that we haven't really quite seen before. Um, And that there are a couple of ways in which that happens. One is the famine in Lebanon, which is a kind of under-emphasized aspect of the violence of the First World War in the Middle East, um, which is comes about as a kind of simultaneous consequence of Ottoman policies of conscription and, um, you know, the stripping away of resources from the provinces in order to supply the military, Um, but also the British and French blockade of the Syrian coast, which prevents food from reaching the Arab provinces and is an enormously important, and I would argue, fairly deliberate contributing factor to the mass famine that strikes Lebanon and Syria and Palestine um, during the years of the war. So we're beginning already to see a kind of an effect of mass violence on this one territory that is specific to that territory, right? That that violence is itself, violence in the form of this famine, in the form of the requisitioning, in the form of the blockade, is beginning to articulate the Arab provinces as a distinct political space. So that that's going to be something that is important for for later on. Um, And the Ottoman state itself is gradually articulating itself as a Turkish state, although I think that process is um, equivocal and not definite, right, during this period that there there is a back and forth about what that will look like. um, And you know, an uncertainty about the eventual outcome, um, but that we are beginning to see the articulation of strands of ethnic nationalism under the pressures of the war, under the pressures of the the occupations, um, particularly of the Arab provinces by the European powers, um, that is new and 
is essentially depends on a practice of violence towards non-Muslim populations um, and non-Turkish populations to some degree within what's left of the Ottoman realm. So many of my students, I'm teaching World Civ this semester as always, um, if asked, will identify that World War I started in 1914 and ended in 1918. Yeah. Is that a chronology <laughs> that makes any sense for the Ottoman Empire? No. I Actually, it's funny that you should say this because I sometimes teach a class on the First World War, and it's one of the first things I tell my students is that this, <laughs> this, these four years are, do not encompass the war. Um, I would say the First World War starts at least as far back as 1912 with the mm -hmm. opening of the First Balkan War and possibly the year before um, with the engagements in North Africa. Um and goes at least until 1923, when the last treaty settling the kind of outstanding issues of the war is signed at Lausanne um, and kind of puts a cap on the war by formalizing a mass ethnic cleansing in Turkey and Greece as the kind of ultimate demographic outcome of the war in the Ottoman sphere. So it's a very long process, actually. And I think that the only way that that 1914 to 1918 chronology makes sense is if you're looking at it strictly from the perspective of Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And even then, even then, actually, it's problematic, right? Because, because we do have kind of ongoing Western European involvement, um, you know, in places like mm -hmm. Eastern Europe in the, the occupations of the Arab world, right, which are not even close to being over in 1918, mm -hmm. um, you know, in engagements with the emerging Turkish Republic, um, in engagements with building the new states of Eastern Europe, like Poland and Hungary, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to say that, I mean, clearly none of these questions are resolved in 1918. And it's not just that they're not resolved on paper, they are still being fought over on the ground by armies. So we've mostly talked about responses within the Ottoman Empire. But of course, the, the Western uh, uh, countries are are simultaneously trying to reimagine uh, their future in this region. So so what are what are leaders in France and Britain and, and other countries? What how are they imagining a future for um, this region as the war goes on? And, and how do they try and achieve that? Well, the First World War is fundamentally a war about empire, right? Mm. It is a war that is about European expansion of control over colonial territory across the globe mm. and whether or not Germany has the right to participate in that process. And I think that one of the things that we tend to not recognize sufficiently is that when we look at the military campaigns against the Ottoman Empire, um, by the British and the French in particular, and Russia to a kind of secondary degree, what we are actually seeing is the laying of the groundwork for a permanent colonial occupation of those regions, right? There is a reason that one of the first British military campaigns in the Ottoman sphere starts in Basra. And that is because that is considered to be a crucial colonial outpost because of Britain's interest in the already burgeoning oil industry there because of its proximity to the Gulf because of its proximity its, its path through to India um, you know these are conceived of as colonial occupations I would argue the same is true um, 
for the French occupation of Syria and Lebanon and for the British occupation of Palestine, um, as well as Iraq, right? That one of the things we're seeing, I think, in the military unfolding of the war is actually the production of some kind of um, nascent colonial governing structures, military governing structures. So their ideas are fuzzy about exactly what that will look like and how it will function. But it is very clear from the beginning of the Allied engagement in the Ottoman sphere that they are envisioning taking this territory to some degree under colonial control. And the mechanisms by which that eventually happens are blurred by the American interest in kind of a rhetorical fig leaf over that colonial practice, mm-hmm. right? So when we see the the mandate system and the League of Nations emerging, um, you know, it's covering over the kind of direct colonial nature of that occupation um, to some degree. But I think it's clear that the plans are being laid um, pretty early on and that we could even argue that it's really, it's one of the fundamental kind of military and political goals of the war itself. Yeah, that's that that vision of World War One is a really interesting, important one. I, I long ago I started out life as a Habsburg historian, and I think you can make an argument that in addition to um, empire as a forward-looking concept, it's a it's a backward-looking concept, right? World War One for some people is an effort to preserve the option of having an imperial structure in an increasingly nationalized world. Absolutely, yeah, and it's interesting too because I think there is. You know, we don't want to be kind of too nostalgic about um, Mm. the idea of these pluralistic empires, but there are ways in which we need to recognize their essential functionality right up until Mm -hmm. the First World War, right? Mm -hmm. That there are places where the Ottoman Empire is is working well, where, you know, that it it has a kind of basic legitimacy, um, even across the Arab provinces, um, that disintegrates during the course of the war, but survives, you know, remarkably, a, a remarkably long time. Um, and well into the kind of era of the nation state. Um, so we have kind of two different visions of empire, right? One is for these older, pre-modern, less territorially saturated mm-hmm. forms of mm-hmm. rule, um, which have hierarchical, hierarchical understandings of the communities under their rule, but nevertheless can make space for a wide variety of such communities. And then we have these colonial empires, which are run along much more territorialist lines, which have specifically racial visions of political hierarchy and which operate in a much more kind of directly military fashion. So if mandate is a PR term or a fig leaf or to to choose your description, how how did these countries try and implement, these colonial powers trying to implement control on the ground in this region in, in, I guess we'll call it the interwar period. This, I think, is this is actually one of the kind of secondary historiographical goals of this book is to mm. rewrite our understanding of the mandate period. Because I think that we have this idea, even if we recognize that the mandates are essentially a fig leaf for colonial control, that that they are in some way constraining, right? That the conditions mm-hmm. of mandatory rule constrain what Britain and France can do in Palestine, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, um, and that they place limits on the exercise of colonial power. When we actually look at what happens on the ground in the mandates, from Iraq to Lebanon to Palestine, 
what we see is the exercise of colonial brutality. Mm. It takes an enormous number of troops to hold on to somewhere like Palestine. It takes the exercise of violence against civilian populations on an enormous scale. We see this right from the very beginning of the mandate in places like Iraq, where, you know, Iraq becomes kind of ground zero and experimenting with aerial bombardment of civilian villages as a mode of, you know, of of political control in 1920. So right at the beginning of the mandatory period, um, you know, we see this in the French reaction to the revolt in Syria in 1925 to 27, where they essentially bomb Damascus into smithereens and are completely ruthless about targeting civilians on a mass scale. We see this again in Palestine in the revolt of 1936 to 39, where one historian has estimated that 10% of the Palestinian Arab male population is killed, wounded, arrested, or deported. Um, these are astonishingly bloody administrations and regimes. They rely on physical force to an extent that we have utterly failed as historians to recognize and acknowledge. Mm. And they leave behind shattered societies. So by the time these places are sort of, you know, beginning to emerge, kind of with the exception of Palestine, right, um, beginning to emerge from colonial rule in the 1920s, 1930s and early 1940s, you know, the civil society that existed there, even in the late Ottoman period, has been deliberately wrecked. Mm. And I think that we, you know, we have a tendency when we talk about the mandates, we talk about the language of the mandates, right? We talk about what people are saying about the mandates and what they're saying about British and French rule over places like Syria and Palestine. And we have not sufficiently looked at the mechanics on the ground of how these places are ruled, which is almost totally through violent means. So I think that's a really kind of important corrective that I wanted to make in this book in talking about this period. And so if the theme or the one of the questions of the book is about the way in which violence becomes normalized and essential to the construction and identification and, and, and sovereignty of a state, how does that, how, how does this colonial violence move this process along? Well, it establishes violence as the only mode of governance, right? Mm-hmm. Because because these these administrations are put into place against the express will of the population, right? I mean, there's no question. I think this is this is kind of one of the interesting things about colonial rule in the Middle East is that we have such clear expressions at the beginning that this is not what the populace wants, right? We have, and that you know. There are lots and lots of documentary, there's lots of documentary evidence of that from the King Crane Commission in Palestine to the General Syrian Congress in 1919. And, you know, that we have many explicit statements from all levels of the populations that they don't want the mandatory powers there. Um, So there's no legitimacy from the beginning. There's no possibility of legitimacy. And one of the things that the mandatory powers are facing is that they have this, um, you know, the mandates are theoretically supposed to be temporary until these populations have the kind of, you know, political acumen to self-govern. So it is in the interests of the mandatory powers to put off that moment as long as possible, 
right? So the mechanism by which they do that is not just military occupation, but the active destruction of political institutions, mm. right? They want to make it possible to make a public argument to the league and the international community more generally that there's no readiness for self-government. And to do that, they have to actually dismantle the institutions of self-government that are already there. So something that happens in this interwar period of colonial rule is that there is no expression of legitimacy of regime, right? That the colonial powers don't really even make an effort to say that, right? They don't make an effort to say we are ruling over this territory because we have a legitimate claim in some in some way to be, um, you know, that that this this has a ju- this has a political justification. It doesn't have a political justification. It only has a military justification. Mm-hmm. It only has a justification of force. So, this dismantling of all forms of civic expression, the rise of censorship the rise of the use of force, um, you know, the, I, I would argue that the kind of deliberate sectarianization and fragmentation of the mm. population is also part of this process, right? Means that by the time we get to the end of what's actually a fairly short period of colonial rule, you know, a couple of decades, 30 years, maybe in, in, in a couple of cases, um, we have a, we have established a state that has to necessarily be the basis for any kind of post-colonial endeavor at governance that has no premise of legitimacy. It only has the premise of violence. And so that's what people have to build on in the post-colonial era, mm. that they they only have the premise of a state that has governed entirely by force. So there's a couple dates in that, that post-World War II period that you identify as critical and, and ask you to talk a little bit about each of them and why you signal uh, or why you identify those as important points. And so the first is 1948. Why, why is that so critical? Well, <laughs> 1948 is, is a crucial turning point because of the establishment of the state of Israel, mm-hmm. because of the success in political terms of the Zionist settler project that begins in earnest with the British um, expression of support for it and the Balfour Declaration of 1917. But I think in a more abstract key, so, you know, 1948 is always recognized, you know, Middle East historians would always recognize 1948 as a kind of crucial formative date Mm -hmm. in the making of the modern Middle East. My argument in this book is, is that it goes actually beyond the war itself and the establishment of the state. And that when the mandate for Palestine is abandoned and the war breaks out and Israel is established, one of the things that is being established in a political key is the absolute supremacy globally of the ethnic nation state model. Hmm. It's remarkable that the state of Israel in its early days, marshals so much political support across the globe from what is, you know, now being referred to as the international community, right, in the form of the UN and, and, mm-hmm. and other formulations. And one of the messages that that, ex- that broad acceptance sends to its Arab neighbors, who are also emerging from colonial rule in the same moment, is that ethnic nationhood is the only viable mode forward, 
right? That, that it's, it's going to be the only viable organizing principle of the post-1945 era, and that it is the only political institution that will be broadly recognized by the international community such it is as it is as a legitimate one. So it really means the kind of abandonment of other ideas about political organization, you know, about what nation state belonging could look like. Um, so I think that that's, that's an important kind of, it, it's an important political moment as well as kind of a border drawing moment and a map making moment. Um, and the other thing is that it establishes violence, once again, as the basis for statehood, right? That Israel, which is now being kind of applauded and acclaimed by the uh, much of the globe, right? By the, the, the emerging superpowers, as well as the old imperial powers, um, is a state that has emerged through the use of force and through the use of expulsion. Not a new idea in the context of the Middle East and elsewhere, right? There's, 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 I think, a real argument for seeing 1948 as kind of a culmination of a process of the making of states by deportation and expulsion that has been going on for many decades across the region. Um, but it solidifies the use of violence as a legitimate um, and maybe even the only legitimate way of making a state and then it establishes Israel as a state where the military is going to be the kind of central operative force in the political the, the political practice of the state itself right and that's something that happens in other countries across the post-colonial Middle East as well, where the military becomes the kind of main institution of state mm. governance in some pretty important ways. And so the other important date, at least as I read your book, you're highlighting, and, and, and I hope I've read it right, but is, is 1967. Why, why is that critical? Well, 1967, I mean, it's it's interesting the way that 1967 comes up globally. I think this is not mm. something I particularly address in the book, but I've been struck by <laughs> the way it, it serves as a kind of watershed date across the globe for apparently unrelated reasons. Um, and, I, and I think that 1967 is another, well, it's first of all, it's the moment where the, the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories begins, right? Um, where this kind of permanent military presence mm. um, is established as a, as a way of governing without even making um, a kind of rhetorical effort to include populations within the nation state proper. Right. Um, so, but it's also, it's also the beginning of a new kind of post-colonial politics where we can see that these kinds of nascent visions of post-coloniality that try to move beyond the nation state have failed. Right. Hmm. Um, and, and I think, so it is kind of a watershed moment in a number of different respects that we see a kind of doubling down on the use of violence in post-colonial regimes across mm -hmm. the Arab world in the aftermath of the defeat of 1967. Um, we also see the emergence of a new kind of Palestinianness, as where the experience of occupation of the military occupation is a, is a, in some ways a unifying experience, where the experience of refugeedom is joined by the experience of, of occupation. 
Um, and we also see, crucially, the beginning of a new role for the superpowers and particularly mm. for the United States in the Middle East, which now sees itself as having an opportunity to interject American interests in Middle Eastern politics by kind of proxy means, right? It sees it mm. sees new opportunities here, um, not just in Israel, but also in other parts of the metric. And then I think you could you could apply this principle beyond the realm of what I'm talking about in this book to places like the Gulf as well. So so it is the beginning of a new kind of post-colonial politics. I think we have this period of a couple of decades in the immediate aftermath of the end of empire. Um, you know, where there's there's some uncertainty about the political mm. forms that will emerge. After 1967, there's much less uncertainty. And I would argue that it's the beginning of a period of almost recolonization, right? Where the superpowers are going to come in. They're not going to direct, well, <laughs> I shouldn't say they're not going to directly control the region <laughs> because clearly that does happen eventually um, in some ways. Um, but where they, they're, they're thinking of different ways to establish their presence which are less direct than the forms of colonization that we see in the interwar period, mm. but, but, but arguably no less central to how the political landscape is actually developing on the ground. So put a call back to world civ again, because it, 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 if I was teaching world civ, the next date that would matter would be 1989 is, is 1989 yeah. a, a, an important moment for the middle East? It is, I think. Um, it's an it's an interesting question actually because it's also kind of corresponds with the the first intifada right which mm -hmm. which breaks out in at the very end of 1987 and is is happening through 1988 to into the early 90s. Um, I think that the end of the Cold War, if we can describe it that way, um, that the the end of the Cold War means that the United States has lost its it's it's rhetorical legitimization of the way in which it's carrying out proxy conflicts in the mm. Middle East and elsewhere, right? So it has to begin to look for other kinds of justifications. And what it lands on, I think 1989 is an important moment because what it lands on by the time we get to the, the 1990s is this mode of kind of theoretical humanitarianism, right? Um, that it is going to much like the colonial powers that it is, you know, it's succeeding, that it will identify client communities, client regimes, client populations on the ground whose interests have to be in some way defended, and that that will necessarily mean the insertion of American military and economic material, in many cases, interests, um, on the ground, right? So, so there's a new rhetoric of justification, which actually, I mean, it's interesting if we think about the level of American involvement in the Middle mm -hmm. East, it's arguable that it really intensifies after 1989, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, I mean, I, I don't think that's a very hard case to make at all. Um, so in a way, this new international, this, this new international violence, as I'm kind of calling it in the book and, and, and this, this, this um, veneer of humanitarian intervention turns out to be a more powerful rhetorical justification for American intervention mm. across the metric than the Cold War ever was, right? It's actually tremendously useful um, and it's ongoing to the, to the present day. 
So, so we're drawing somewhat close to the end of your time, and I don't want to abuse your time, but I do want to ask some of questions that point at kind of the way this book sheds light on the current uh, issues in the region. And and to start, one thing you you argue quite forcefully is that that what Americans tend to think of as as we'll call Islamic extremism or fundamentalism or something like that 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 this you argue that this is a very recent or relatively recent phenomena in the region. Um, not a, a not not one that's essentialist or or deeply rooted in the historical uh, uh, context. Um, so why does this happen in this recent decades? It happens because of the failures of secular nationalism on the one hand, mm. and the intensification of external intervention on the other. So it's actually, it's a post-1967 phenomenon, right? Mm. And I want to make it clear here that I'm not making the argument that there haven't been um, Muslim influences or even mm. kind of Islamist mm. influences mm -hmm. in, in Middle Eastern politics in the earlier period, right? We clearly have, you know, Islam is an, an important... Um, as a social practice, it influences all kinds of political entities that we have the beginnings of organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood coming from the early 1920s. Uh, sorry, the, the late 1920s, 1928 is when it starts. Um, you know, in Palestine, we see some kind of Islamist strands to the revolt, for instance, in the late 1930s. But the idea of an Islamist government is one that can only arise in in contrast to the secular nation state that is only established after mm. 1945, right, across the Middle East. And actually, I think the 1967 war and its failure has something to do with it, that we see the kind of collapse of the claims of secular Arab nationalism, um, mm. that that those, those governments, those regimes have proven to be, you know, as susceptible to corruption and incompetence as the regimes that they replaced. And that should not be a surprise to us. I mean, I think that we have this tendency to say, oh, now, now countries are independent. Why can't they get their act <laughs> together? Well, you know, they're building on a failed state in the form mm. of colonial rule, right? So it is unsurprising that secular nationalisms of the sort that we see in the 1950s and 1960s in places like Egypt and Iraq and Syria, it's it should be unsurprising to us that they cannot manage to put together a functioning political sphere, right? They, they are building on a shattered state, one that has been shattered by violence, one whose political and civil structures have been deliberately dismantled for decades. Um, you know, so, so I, so I don't think we should be surprised by that failure of secular nationalism, but when that secular nationalism a, closes down other avenues of political dissent itself, as these authoritarian mm. states that we see in the post-colonial period often do. And B, begins to make alliances with precisely the kind of neo-colonial um, interventionist entities that people remember so well from the previous period, from the, from the, from the interwar period, it, dis it, it does two things, right? It discredits itself as a project and mm -hmm. it closes down any secular and civil spaces for political discourse such that the only remaining places where people can actually express this kind of political dissent are in the religious sphere. So there are both kind of political and philosophical and practical reasons why 
Islamism begins its rise in the late 1960s, early 1970s, Mm. and why it becomes the kind of primary locus of political opposition to these authoritarian governments by the time we get to the the early 1980s, right? Um, And I think we should also mention that in places like Palestine, which is actually quite resistant to the rise of Islamist thought Mm. for a long time, you know, I mean, the PLO is an avowedly secular organization, from its from from its inception, um, that when we do eventually see groups like Hamas um, coming into prominence in the during the Intifada um, and in the late 1980s and early 1990s, one of the things that those institutions are those those organizations are doing along the lines of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is providing social services and stepping into the role of the mm-hmm. of a of a, of the state, right? Which has failed enormous numbers of people. We have to acknowledge that. Um, so I think that you know we can see it in a kind of political key with the failures of secular authoritarianisms and the closing down of other forms of political opposition and dissent. And we can also see it in a practical key, where it's possible for these grassroots Islamist organizations to kind of step in and provide services and opportunities for people who have been left behind by the post-colonial states in a practical sense. Yeah, I was going to ask about the Unifada because you talk about that as a, as a, as a moment of nonviolent confrontation and, and one that failed, or as first Unifada is, is one that failed. Was, was it inevitable that nonviolent confrontation would fail? And, and, and it, is that, if, if so, what does that say about the future of nonviolent um, opposition or confrontation in the region? You know, I mean, I think that this is something that lots of other people have written about in other contexts as well. And I think that, so I would say two things. One is that we would all like to think that nonviolent protest works, mm-hmm. right? And of course, there are famous instances where it has been effective as a political tactic. I would argue that those instances mostly exist in a context where there is also a more violent kind of opposition, right? A more violent kind of resistance and that the powers that be make a tactical decision to accommodate nonviolent protest in order to not have to face down the demands of the more radical sector of the movement. Hmm. Um, So I think that's something, for instance, that we can see in the civil rights movement in the United States, um, to some degree. And that's, that's, it's, it's something that, um, you know, many other people know much more about than I do. Um, but I would, I would point to the fact that historically, I think successful nonviolent movements exist in very specific political contexts, right. And that they often actually rely on the threat of a, a violent or, you know, or more radical form of that same kind of resistance mm. that, that, that exists in many of these, these instances. Um, but that it's also crucial to remember um, that nonviolent protest requires an audience, right? It requires mm-hmm. an audience. It requires um, some kind of space for the exercise of external pressure. And I think in the case of, of the Intifada, that it didn't, the, the activism, the nonviolent activism of the Intifada did not find that international audience. Mm. Um, and so it was unable to exert 
the kind of pressure that other sorts of nonviolent movements have been able to exert on their oppressors. Um, and it's part, I mean, one of the points that I want to make in the book is that the Intifada and the practice of nonviolent demonstration and protest, that is a long historical tradition across the 20th century Middle East that has mostly been crushed by force. Mm. And that the Intifada is, you know, the, the, the latest in a long line of peaceful protest, demonstration, political opposition to various forms of colonial and neocolonial oppression um, that have largely been bombed, gunned down, you know, trampled in, in various violent ways. And that it's one of the ways in which we have to recognize the centrality of violence to the practice of political authority of the state across the 20th century. The Intifada is, is, is just one example of something that has unfolded over many, many decades. You, you talk a lot about the interests of global powers in the Middle East and the way that shaped action in the Middle East. This I know this is a speculative question, but in, in a world where we hope oil will become less and less important, um, what does that mean for politics and or what might that mean for politics in the Middle East? You know, it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, there's been a recent book by the political scientist um, Robert Vitalis called Oilcraft that suggests that the kind of politics of oil has had very little to do with the actual hmm. um, geopolitical realities of oil. Um, hmm. If that is in fact the case, I think we could see very much more of the same. Right. And and actually, I mean, oil is one element of the kind of material interest that the United States has held in places like Iraq. But it's not the only one. Um, I think that the kind of use of these spaces for, as a as a military base, as a series of military bases, um, that that has been an important kind of strategic consideration in terms of American involvement. And at this point, I think also that one of the points I try to make in the book about the 1980s and 1990s is that the flooding of the region with weaponry, the kind of mm -hmm. material flooding of, of the Middle East with arms, has been incredibly lucrative in itself, right? Mm -hmm. So there are ways in which these are self-perpetuating cycles that have relatively little to do with the maybe the initial strategic or material interests that provoked the interventions in the first instance. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, I, 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 it's a good question, and it's a reasonable kind of theory to think that the that a change in the in the politics of oil might provoke a change in Middle Eastern American relations. I don't think we've seen evidence of that yet. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that oil won't be just replaced with other kinds mm. of strategic justifications. Yeah, I've I, I, I got a note in here about how grim a picture you paint about the present and future of the Middle East. Um, and so my second speculative question, is there a way forward that doesn't involve violence? If you create this, if, if the argument you are making is that self, or at least one of the implications of your argument is that violence is self-reinforcing and, um, and, uh, and it's likely to create a momentum for more violence, is there a way forward? Or is, is there really this the future of the, at least the near-term future for the region? 
I have to say, I, I find it difficult to view the near-term future with a lot of optimism. Mm. But I will say, I mean, I think this that one of the things that came across to me in kind of completing this long 20th century history of the region is that there is such a rich political tradition, which mm. has been repressed again and again and again, but nevertheless persists in a lot of kind of important ways across the decades. There's an important, there's a rich political tradition of reimagining governance as one that reflects the will of the population, mm. of reimagining statehood as one that can encompass a variety of populations and communities and viewpoints, you know, that, that, that we don't hear very much about that because it has been repressed by the use of violence mm. that is often external, right? But it doesn't mean it's not there. And it doesn't mean it can't be operative again, um, you know, when circumstances will allow. And I think that, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are people across the generations who have had and have fought for mostly unsuccessfully because of these kinds of violent interventions, but they have fought for a different kind of Middle East. They have fought mm. for a different vision of what this part of the world could look like. Um, and that it's really crucial to acknowledge their work, acknowledge their bravery, and to recognize our own complicity in ensuring that their visions didn't come to fruition. Mm. Mm. So I think there are always other options, right? I mean, that's something that I tell my students all the time as historians, nothing is inevitable. You know, we always need to recognize that every, there are, there are always other paths, other options, other opportunities. I think that we can see in the violent history of the nation state the toxicity of those forms of political expression and also recognize that they belong to a very specific period in history. They haven't been with us forever. They might not be with us forever. Um, so it's one of the things that historians can do is that they can point to paths not taken of other political imaginaries. And, you know, those, those can be used as blueprints for a different kind of future. Well, that seems a good place to, to, to stop talking about the book. I always ask and end and interviews with the same question, um, although I will say the framing is a little bit different. Ordinarily, at this time of the year, if I was going to ask this question, I would talk about the oncoming spring break and my ability to read something interesting <laughs> rather than grade. But of course, we don't have spring break this year. No. Uh, or at least we don't have spring break. We don't, I don't, we don't know have about spring you. break either. No, we don't either. <laughs> yeah, well, I, maybe I can carve out a day. So... So what should I read? What 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 book or maybe watch? What movie, book, documentary? What what was it uh, important to you as you were thinking about these issues that you think I and the the audience should should read or watch? There are so many things to pick from here. It's hard to know. Um, I think that one of my very favorite films um, that that addresses some of the questions that I think about in this book is a wonderful Lebanese film from the late 1990s called West Beirut that is about huh. a friendship between three adolescents um, in Beirut at the outbreak of the Civil War. And it's just a really beautiful exploration, A, of what pre-war Beirut was like, of what these relationships between communities in this kind of cosmopolitan Mediterranean center 
um, you know, how the, how that, how those relationships were lived and also the kind of human cost of the watching society break down Mm. into these, into this kind of sectarian violence. It's the rare film about civil war that is also quite funny. And it's just a really beautiful human exploration of this particular moment in Lebanese history. Um, and I love it and I would highly recommend it. Well, I think I could probably find a time on a weekend to watch a film. I think that's a good <laughs> excuse for not grading. I'm giving so, you an easy assignment. <laughs> oh, it's very kind of you. I'm sure your students will rate you highly. Thank you much. <laughs> it's a wonderful book. I, I so much appreciate your time um, today and your time in working on the book and I highly recommend it. Um, what, what's next for you? I am currently working on, um, I'm turning towards a more kind of global history project, um, and I'm working on a a book called The M Project that is a history of plans for resettling refugees in distant corners of the world across the 20th century. Um, It's named after a project that Franklin Roosevelt spearheaded in the 1940s, the Mm -hmm. migration project, where he thought about moving refugees to remote corners of Australia and Latin America and South Africa and Iraq. And, um, so it's, it's hopefully a project that will help us to rethink how refugee policy has been made and envisioned um, across, across the whole of the 20th century and in the Middle East, but also beyond. Well, it sounds like a, a fascinating and I will confess somewhat daunting project, but I'm sure you will finish it at some point in the <laughs> relatively near future. Uh, And when you do, I hope you'll be back on the New Books Network. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.